Saturdays with Jenny on Kaya 959 on the street on the air. This last weekend, the Sunday Times CNA announced the shortlist of its fiction and non-fiction um, awards, and it's very very exciting. We still got a way to go to announce the actual winners, but there were five shortlisted non-fiction books, five non uh, five fiction books, and. They had what they did is they put together two years worth of writing because last year was a write off for anybody in the arts and in particular, I think, for writing. So we are looking in the show today at the nonfiction awards and we're just going to touch on each of them. The criteria for anybody who walks away with the award, let alone the shortlist, which I think is hugely important, is that the winner should demonstrate the illumination of truthfulness, especially those forms of it that are new, that are delicate, unfashionable and fly in the face of power, compassion, elegance of writing and intellectual and moral integrity. So I can't think of of any book that better deserves that description than a book that came out, I think, in the middle of last year. And it was called The Pink Line, Journeys Across the World's Queer Frontiers. It was written by Mark Gavisser. He joins us on the line. Mark, given that long list that we saw of people who had written really worthwhile books and who just didn't get a look in last year, this must have been a very difficult choice. So I'm so delighted for you. Thank you so much, Jenny, and for your very, very kind words. So your book has now been out, if if my, my thinking is correct, it's been out for almost a year and it's been published. Exactly a year. Exactly. So, <laughs> and it's also been published internationally. Uh, yes, it's been published. It was published in the United States, the United Kingdom and South Africa simultaneously last year and has re- and more recently been published in, in Europe, in Germany and in Italy. And it's about to be published in Polish, which is a first for me. So have you had a chance or has there been enough time for you to gauge the response to your book? Because the response is always going to be, please, can we interview you? Please, can we, you know, discuss uh, the topic with you? Yeah, the response has been amazing. It was obviously, it was, a, it was last year was an impossibly difficult year to, to publish a book and to publish nonfiction, particularly in the United States, that wasn't about Donald Trump or Black Lives Matter or the pandemic. So it was very, very hard to get noticed last year uh, against my expectations and the expectations of the publisher. Nonetheless, it, it really did get some fantastic reviews and it, and it did very good sales. Um, and it's kind of been building in a really interesting way. I've been very moved personally by the correspondence I've got and by uh, the way readers have responded to the book and, and specifically about the way it's opened up and, and a, a kind of a, a, a global area to people who thought that sort of LGBT rights or gay rights was sort of sorted mm. because they live in South Africa or Western Europe or North America. And, and it's been really interesting for me to see the way uh, readers have reckoned with how complicated these issues are on, on, a, on a global scale. And, and that's really what I wanted to do with the book was to, to try and, and make those issues come alive by, by telling stories about people who live sort of on the front lines of, of, of these issues in 10 different countries all over the world. 
including South Africa. Well, I was just looking at the description of the pink line in the Sunday Times and uh, just taking, a, you know, a sort of a small snapshot out of it. The word, it enabled people around the world uh, to look at an entirely new way over the first two decades of the 21st century. And you observe mm. that no social movement has brought change so quickly and with such dramatic, uh, dramatically uh, mixed results. And fresh culture wars have erupted. I mean, the impact of this of this book is just extraordinary, I think. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if the impact of the book is extraordinary. We'll have to see about that. The, certainly the impact of this new global conversation around around LGBT rights, uh, uh, the, the, new, the new staking of a pink line, uh, which is what I call it, uh, which is a new human rights frontier about sexual orientation and gender identity. I think that's had a huge impact and it's an impact we, we really are only beginning to understand. To me, when I came out of the closet sort of in, in the early 1990s, late 1980s as a, as a young gay man. I, I hope the impact of the book is to help people understand these debates uh, more clearly and understand how, how the debates have affected people's lives on the ground in countries like South Africa, like Uganda, like Egypt, like Russia, like the United States, which like Israel, Palestine. These are some of the countries I write about. And uh, and I mean, if you look at the, the situation in South Africa, like Uganda, for instance, um, the, the situation for anybody who, uh, who who comes out of the closet and says, "I am gay and I am proud," um, is is dire. Not necessarily dire, but I think this is one of the things I wanted to show is is that there's this there's this idea that there, that there's a global pink line dividing those countries where they are rights for LGBTQ people and where there aren't. And in that pink line, South Africa would draw itself on one side of that pink line because, you know, we're famously the only country, the first country in the world to explicitly outlaw discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. We're the fifth country in the world to permit same-sex marriage. So, like, does this mean we're, we're home free, we're over the rainbow? Mm. Not at all, because these pink lines you know, don't just run between countries, they run through countries, they run through families and communities. And and because of our incredibly high rates of gender-based violence in this country, uh, queer people, if I can use that word, who who are gender non-conforming, still are victims of horrific crimes. And, you know, there's much that's been written about the punitive rape of butch lesbians or or the murders of, of femme gay men recently. Mm. Mm. There, there still is a there still is a lot to face, but there there is also a big difference to a countries uh, such as Uganda or Malawi, where where one of my people who I write about comes from, and that is is that in this country, on paper at least, the law is on your side. On paper at least, the ruling party is is strongly protective of your rights, and and this has very significant. Um, implications in terms of the ability of of people to to come out to form a subculture to talk to their parents to come out in their churches and you will find that alongside all the dire stories and there and there certainly are many of your Kaya FM readers will, would be able to report as well that they are able to be more authentically and publicly themselves than perhaps their parents or grandparents who would have been gay or transgender might have been. There is this cultural space now and there are these 
these rights now. Well, listen, I'm holding, you know, fingers crossed and everything for this because I think it is an extraordinary effort and I think it has done extraordinary things exactly what uh, the Nonfiction Award is supposed to do. So good luck, Mark, and congratulations again. Thank you so much, Jim. And let me give you the details uh, of the book. It's called The Pink Line, Journeys Across the World's Queer Frontiers, written by Mark Gavissa and is published by Jonathan Ball Publishers. So we're continuing with the Sunday Times nonfiction shortlist and we're looking at a book which I'm sure many of you will have seen on the shelves. And it, uh, the title of the book is Dirty Tobacco, Spies, Lies and Mega Profits. And it's written by a lawyer, actually. She's based in Singapore uh, called Talita. Snickers, and she lays bare the underbelly of the local and the international tobacco industry. And uh, and what she does highlight is the illicit trade in tobacco, especially cigarettes, costs the South African economy billions of rands annually through lost tax revenue. And she reveals shockingly how reputable tobacco companies have for decades been complicit in cigarette smuggling. Now, I don't know whether this the title of this book is going to, um, I suppose, draw more attention to uh, the illicit tobacco trade. But can you remember in lockdown when people weren't couldn't buy cigarettes? Well, I mean, it must have gone through the roof then. It must literally have gone through the roof. Anyway, that is uh, her book, hugely researched, really interesting. And it's Dirty Tobacco, Spies, Lies and Mega Profits. But in the meantime, we are trying to get hold of a book that I read from cover to cover because it was so astonishing. And it's written by Andrew Harding, who is a foreign correspondent. He's well known to anybody who goes, you know, to the um, goes and watches the news compulsively like I do. And he is an author of other books. But this, his most recent one, is called These Are Not Gentle People. And he is a distinguished foreign correspondent. And the Sunday Times says he presents a gripping and layered true story of crime, punishment and redemption. And it's the story of the brutal beating and death. It is harrowing to read. I've got to say, the the opening chapter is absolutely harrowing. It is terrifying. And uh, and it's this, uh, the, these two, I think three men um, came and knocked on the door of a farmhouse and were told to go away. He was given short shrift. And, uh, and it is just one of the most startling and disturbing uh, openings to, uh, to um, many a book that I've actually read. But, um, but the whole thing is set in a Paraiso, outside Paraiso, Free State Farming Town. But I, I do want to say that of all of these books, there are definite contenders for the title. And this has got to be. So just remember, These Are Not Gentle People by Andrew Harding. And it really is. It, it, you will never in your life forget the opening chapter. You just will never be able to to forget it um, because it is it is a South African story. Right. Well, let's talk about another book that has caused such waves. It really has in uh, in this country. And it's a book written by Peter Louis Myberg, um, investigative journalist, and he is the author of Gangster State. 
and uh, and basically, uh, I mean, the title of the book is Gangster State, and then the subtitle is Unraveling Ace Magashuli's Web of Capture. And uh, and if any book has had a result, it's this one because my goodness me, um, the investigative girl, uh, journalists in our community have been doing astonishing work in terms of of um, alleged crime and corruption and so on and so forth. So really and truly, this is a significant, significant book. Um, Two years on from publication, and this is what the Sunday Times wrote about it, uh, this explosive investigation is more pertinent than ever as the ANC Secretary General faces expulsion from the party. And Maiburg digs deep into Magashuli's history of murky dealings from when he was a struggle activist in the 1980s to his powerful rule as Premier of the Free State Province for nearly a decade and his rise to one of the ANC's most influential positions. And everything is there. I mean, everything that you have seen on the Zondo Commission is there and it is uh, revealed uh, by Peter Louis Myberg. Really a sterling effort that has been made. But please look uh, look for that book and see what you can what you can actually get. And let's go to another South African story by Jacob Lamini. He is based in Princeton at the moment. He's got a tiny baby. He did a reading for me. We're going to play it. And uh, and he examines the history of the world famous reserve and places black people front and centre of the narrative. Just listen to what he sent me last night. On June 15, 1938, John David Reynolds Jones, a senator representing Africans from the Transvaal and the Orange Free State in South Africa's West Only Parliament, wrote to James Stevenson Hamilton, the warden of the Kruger National Park, to inquire about the accommodation of African visitors in the sanctuary. Jones sent the letter which he gave the subject heading Accommodation for Civilized Natives on behalf of a group of African teachers who wanted to visit the park during the coming winter holidays but had been given to understand that there is no accommodation for native tourists in the rest camps. The teachers had their own car, had their own linen and were quite willing to pay the ordinary charges but they naturally wished to rest in safety at night, Jones said. If no such accommodation is as yet arranged, is it possible for you to indicate to me any camps at which a temporary arrangement could be made? I have, for instance, addressed your employees in the compound at Skukuza. Could any arrangement be made there and at, say at least, one of the further north camps? Stevenson Hamilton's reply was not long in coming. He replied on June 18, 1938. I have to advise you that the only accommodation in the park which can be made available to the group of native teachers is in the Indian campus Kukuza, the park's main camp. Stevens and Hamilton asked Jones for advance notice of the teacher's arrival so he could make the necessary arrangements. He added, there is at present practically no demand for accommodation in the park by native tourists. An expenditure on the erection of hearts and fences at any of the other rest camps is not considered to be justified. Jones replied to Stevens and Hamilton two days later, saying he would let the warden know as soon as the teachers gave him their travel dates. I have found no evidence of further correspondence about the matter between Jones and Stevens and Hamilton after Jones's letter of June 20th. Thus, we lose our trail of the teachers and cannot say whether they did make it to the Kruger National Park in the end. This chapter follows a teacher's trail, as faint as it is, to see what it might tell us about the interplay between class, gender, and tourism by blacks in the first half of the 20th century in South Africa. 
The teacher story offers clues that, when viewed in a wider context, allow for the historical and imaginative reconstruction of the world of leisure making to which the teachers belonged. These clues fly in the face of conventional wisdom that, when it came to black tourists in colonial and apartheid South Africa, the Kruger National Park was off limits. Scholars such as Jacqueline Koch, Lindy Sezomagi, Hector Magome, and Lynn Maskell have taken it as an article of faith that, as Jane Carruthers claims, Africans were not permitted to visit the park for recreation. But the Petitia story hints at a different history. It speaks to the existence of a relationship between blacks and the Kruger National Park that was in fact richer than the dominant trend in the historiography of conservation in South Africa suggests. The tendency in the historiography has been to see relations between blacks, especially Africans, and the sanctuary in utilitarian terms. With scholars taking it as a given that blacks were excluded from the park unless they were there as service workers or guides. I do not intend to take away from the powerful insights that these scholars have given us, or indeed, to downplay the important fact that, as Jacqueline Cox says, for many black South Africans, dispossession was the other side of conservation. This is true. But my intention here is to use the opening created by Cox's use of the adjective many to examine the connection between the Kruger National Park and those blacks who did visit the park for recreation, or who at least considered the possibility as did our unnamed teachers of doing so. Such an examination yields at least two historical insights. The first is into the existence, even in colonial societies, of spaces for autonomous action by colonial subjects. The second insight is into the material difference that gender and social stratification among black South Africans made regarding who could do what for leisure, where, when, and how. By themselves, these are not novel insights. But applied to the Kruger National Park, they allow for a more complex history of the park, one that helps us see through the park why South Africa was and is a safari nation. Well, there we go. That is uh, Jacob Glamini, and uh, we got it uh, late last night. And the title of his book is Safari Nation, A Social History of the Kruger National Park, and it's published by Jakarta. Saturdays with Jenny, every Saturday from 9 to 11 a.m. On Kaya 959, on the street, on the air.